Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. now. Welcome again to the Explaining History podcast. I am delighted to invite back to the podcast Damien Lewis, who's one of the, the kind of the, the small number of um, historians and authors that we've, we've been lucky to have a, a second uh, visit from. Um, uh, Damien's new title, um, the uh, Forged in Helm, um, another of his uh, histories of the SAS, focuses on the SAS during the Italian campaign um, uh, from the um, the torch landings onwards. And so that's that's going to be really the, the, the focus of our conversation today. But firstly, welcome again, Damien. Um, Thank you. Great to be back. Always good. Yeah. So, so um, previously when we talked about the SAS, we talked about um, the, the the war in the desert in, in North Africa and probably people that uh, have any knowledge of the SAS during the Second World War, that's the kind of thing they would point to, you know, the, uh, the Long Range Desert Group and, and things like that. But from the um, Forged in Hell, the, uh, the importance of the SAS in Italy, um, actually, I had... I had very little knowledge of that, and it and it really kind of struck out to me as 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 this is a thing that's been completely overlooked. Perhaps you can tell us a bit about that. Yeah, it's almost completely um, uh, unknown and unheard of. It's almost as if you know, uh, in it's certainly in the public um, uh, imagination, and and I think in most published sources, the SAS go from you know North Africa and eighteen months of waging war in the desert almost directly to D Day, the post D Day operations. Of course, mm-hmm. that's not what happened at all. Um, you know, the reality is that, um, you know, come February, March 1943, with David Sterling's capture, the founder of the SAS being captured by Rommel's troops, um, 
you know, the SES's uh, fortunes looked very grim indeed. And there was, again, another attempt to disband them, you know, branded raiders of the thug variety, attempts made to write them out of existence, claiming that, you know, now the war was turning towards Europe, with North Africa largely being won. There was no role for such a maverick piratical force, which was fine in the open deserts, but not fine for Europe, where it'd be a more gentlemanly form of warfare. That was the argument used. And, of course, it fell to then-major um, Blair Paddy Main, um, who was one of, obviously, David Sterling's you know, stalwart deputies, mm-hmm. to try to grasp that nettle because somebody has had to step forward and take command, and it fell on his shoulders. Uh, many believed he was not the right individual because, although being a superlative, peerless raider, and leader of men and inspirer of men. Many thought he did not have what it took to fight the battles on high with uh, the British hierarchy. Hmm. And he proved he, them wrong. He, 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 they thought he couldn't do politics, in essence. Yeah, they thought he couldn't, you know, operate in the corridors of power. He was, you know, Maine didn't hide his dislike of those he took against. Um, and he took against those in positions of power or rank we thought didn't deserve those positions of power or rank mm. he couldn't hide that equally he made instant decisions about individuals that he met you know who were stepping forward to join the SAS and he made those decisions in a flash mm-hmm. so he's a guy that goes kind of you know when people are joining the SAS particularly he goes on on instinct um he goes in his gut and he says corridors of power yeah um yeah absolutely then you, you either are kind of guy or not. Um, Absolutely. So uh, one one thing I've often wondered, because you know, we, we, there's this story, isn't there, that kind of uh, the special forces are sort of kind of something that pops from Churchill's imagination in about 1940, and um, uh, it, it, and it's it's one of those things that because it, it sounds like a good story, I'm all, I always wonder about it, and and one of the things I I guess I wonder is you know, as the war dragged on, and you know how much, how much interest did Churchill maintain in people like Paddy Mayne and David Sterling? Yeah, no, the idea that that, that special forces originated—can you hear me? Oh, yes, I can hear you fine. Yes, hello. Yeah, yes. yeah. So the idea that special forces originated, you know, with with Churchill's call to arms in June 1940, is largely correct. I mean, it's absolutely true that he's the. You know, Dudley Clark, Colonel Dudley Clark, came to him with his back of an envelope idea for the commandos and Churchill, you know, the British commandos, and Churchill grabbed it with both hands because he believed even at that moment, our darkest hour, amazingly, wonderfully, he believed that attack was the best form of defence. He believed we had to go on the offensive. And although these kind of raids, you could argue, certainly back then in June, in the summer of 1940, in the autumn of 1940, were but pinpricks in the greater scheme of the war. They weren't, because as Churchill understood innately, instinctively, they were massive flips to the morale of the British people when yeah. they hit the headlines and they gave us the conviction that we could fight and Churchill always had a view, always had a view, always had a view towards America and Roosevelt. And every time there was headlines in the British papers lauding these these commando and special forces operations, they were repeated in America. So it was very effective. Mm-hmm. And because um, at the Casablanca conference in 1943, that's where um, the Americans are sort of persuaded by the British, probably for the last time, um, that, you know, the, the, the British are you know take the lead on strategy and there's misgivings about the mediterranean strategy and there's misgivings about italy 
And I think there are certain, you know, I think Churchill was thinking of going further eastwards into the Greek islands and things like that, but uh, that, that's, that doesn't happen. So Italy is kind of Churchill's pet project. And do you think that at the time, you know, he was he was considering that that, that special the special forces um, would would be integral to that, or is, is his thinking not on that kind of level? Yeah, no. Uh, the soft end underbelly of Europe, you know, the landings from North Africa into uh, Italy, southern Italy, it was Churchill's. This was Kirk, Churchill's great project. It was driven by Stalin's demand that the Allies opened a second front in Europe mm-hmm. to support the Russians, who were getting you know paced, uh, you know, fighting with great courage, but getting, uh, you know, pushed back. And so Churchill argued, and, and Roosevelt bought that argument, that they should open the Second Front in, in the soft underbelly of Europe, southern Italy. And, yeah, there are actually documents in which Churchill writes about the fact that there will need to be, you know, a vanguard of landing forces who are, you know, airborne and seaborne commandos and special forces to act as the tip of the spear. And that's exactly the role that the SAS are given in kind of March 1943 when when paddy main is arguing the SES still have a role in europe and there is there is something they can do sure sure and so to, coming to to italy um the, the this idea of this obviously obviously is, and this has often been said the idea of, of um yeah the soft underbelly of europe it is a complete myth and the italian campaign is long and hard and arduous but you write about um some kind of almost unbelievable um, operations, uh, landing operations to take out naval guns, which I think was later the inspiration for the novel and film, uh, The Guns of Navarone. But perhaps perhaps you can tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so um, it is completely wrong to view Italy as the easy option. And, it, you know, the, 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 the epithet that was given those who fought there, the D-Day Dodgers is is wholly unjustified and unjust. I mean, what actually happened in Italy, yes, initially uh, the Italians surrendered quite quickly, but that made not a jot of difference because all that happened instead was Hitler vowed that Italy would not fall and sent some of his best troops, some of his best armoured divisions, some of his best mountain troops to Italy to hold it at all costs. So it was a long, hard-fought campaign. And bear in mind, we were still fighting to win Italy when our own fortunes were marching across the borders of the fatherland in the north from France and actually taking Germany. So mm-hmm. that's that shows you how hard-fought it was. And the SAS's role from the very word go, which was to serve as the vanguard of the Operation Husky landings, the invasion of Italy, which at that stage was the largest invasion fleet ever assembled. And, you know, a little shy of half a million men at arms. You know, their role, which was to take out these massive shore guns, which were immune to air attack because they were encased in thick concrete, was a total mission impossible. You could argue, and I think a lot of them thought it was a suicide mission because, you know, they had to go in in these these assault landing craft, these very thinly armoured landing craft, right under the barrels of the very guns, so obviously asking to get blown out of the water, to do so at night, then to scale impossible cliffs, carrying impossible loads, including 81mm mortars and mortar shells, and then assault these heavily defended barbed wire encased machine gun nests surrounded gun emplacements when they knew they were going to be outnumbered 50 to 1. Mm-hmm. And if they didn't pull it off within a matter of hours i.e. during the hours of darkness, come sun up, the guns would open up and the invasion fleet would get blown out of the water. So this was a do or die Mission Impossible writ large, absolutely. How um, how on earth did they manage to 
to do it. Well, it got worse before it got anything like better. It got infinitely worse because, you know, sailing across the Mediterranean in July 1943, you can be forgiven for imagining you will experience a flat, sunny calm. Why not? And yeah. all your sort planners imagine that was the case, in- including, indeed, the German opposite number, General Kurt Student, the head of their airborne forces, who, was, who had game planned how the Allies might invade and said, probably Sicily, probably southern Sicily. But there'll be nothing to worry about in terms of the weather because it's always a flat calm. Well, lo and behold, they, the invasion fleet hoves into sight of Sicily. They can see Mount Etna and a terrible storm blows up. It yeah. is howling, blowing a hooli. And as these ships go on to invasion lighting, Maine calls a meeting of his officers and basically says to them, words to the effect, I don't know if the wee little boats will live in the water, meaning will we even get ashore? So there's that terrible moment. You know, and it's it's very poignant where he really alone has to make that decision. Um, do we go and risk getting dashed to pieces, you know, and swamped in, in the seas, or do we not go and risk the whole invasion fleet and getting blown out of the water? Well, I mean, there is really only one decision he can make, and he obviously makes the decision they go. And so they they lower their landing craft into the sea from the from this this converted passenger ferry, the Ulster Monarch, which is now serving as a assault landing craft vessel a carrier mm-hmm. and in that very process of putting the first land trying to put the first landing craft into the sea some get dashed against the side some get hold some are unusable men go overboard it is horrendous but here's the thing mm-hmm. and this is this is the goes to the heart of the SAS and epitomizes who they were and why they were so successful so the landing crafts eventually get to shore there's a ter- terrible terrible moment I mean it really is one of the most you know difficult moments i've ever you know had to write about in terms of what the sas encountered so that they're, they're steaming to shore through these terrible seas they get into the lee of the cliffs and suddenly they see something in the water which is clearly man-made they think it's an e-boat a german e-boat they believe they, they've been detected it wasn't at all it was the first of dozens of horser and wacko hadrian gliders which were supposed to land further inland on sicily carrying British airborne troops to take the key bridges and roads to allow the invasion fleet to advance. But instead, because of the storm, 69 of them were blown into the sea, landed short. And on on the wings and on the fuselage of the sinking aircraft are sat the paratroopers begging to be rescued. Now, second nightmare decision for Maine, who's who's in the lead landing craft because he led from the front always, which is why his men loved him and would follow him anywhere. So Maine then has to make a decision, do I stop, try and haul some of these guys aboard and rescue them, in which case we will probably be too late to take out the shore guns before they can open up, or do I let them all drown? And so what he does is he stops, picks up one, puts him in the boat, gets some intelligence off him, and carries on, On all the rest of the airborne troops are basically left to drown. And hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them do drown. And worse still... Those few gliders that do make it ashore on, 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 onto Sicily, because the airborne planners have been so derelict in their duty, and there's no other word for it, they haven't even probably studied the air reconnaissance photos, which we know exist, because you can see how the SAS studied them in great detail. It's in the book. Because right. they haven't studied them properly, the airborne planners, they haven't realised that Sicily is intensively cultivated and crisscrossed with dry stone walls and those gliders that do make it ashore plow into the dry stone walls and everybody is killed barring a few so at that moment Maine knows that they are 
very likely going to be the only elite force to make it ashore as the vanguard of the Husky landing. So the stakes are even higher. But here's why the storm is a bonus. Because when they get to the shore and when they climb, scale those cliffs, and when mm-hmm. they unleash their first rounds, which they do with the mortar, and when they start to tear into the first major gun emplacement, and bear in mind, Maine has said to his men, he gives a last-minute order, fixed bayonets, we will go in with moonlight glinting on cold steel because he knows time is against them and he knows he has to strike the fear of god into the enemy and as the italian commander of that first battery who has hundreds of men under his command sees realizes it's a land assault it's not an airborne bombing raid he radios his nearest german counterpart not so very far right says look please send reinforcement and the german officer says this storm would make it impossible for anyone to land by air or sea I'm not sending anyone. It's in your imagination. And because of that, no German troops are sent to reinforce that first battery. And many of his men storm in there, intense fighting, but they take it. And they, and very quickly, the, the Sergeant Bill Deakins, Maine's uh, demolitions expert, gets his charger set around the guns and blows them to smithereens. It's an absolutely mind-blowingly incredible undertaking, uh, bearing in mind everything they're up against. And, I mean, some of it, as with all of these things, is down to an element of dumb luck. Um, and some of it is down to the, f- but, but the majority of it is down to the fact that you have someone like Paddy Main who uh, is so single-minded in achieving the objective. Um, and as you say, you know, leading from the front. So the, the invasion force obviously la- uh, landed and uh, Sicily and Southern Italy fell very quickly. What was the role for the SAS in the rest of the the campaign uh, all the way up the Italian peninsula? In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Well, first of all, they, they they take that first gun battery and then their orders rightly have given them given Maine basically total leeway to do whatever he sees as being necessary next. And having taken that first gun battery, there are three more further across the headland, the, the, the Cape of the Pig Snouts Peninsula, um, to translate the Italian name. 
And those guns start trying to fire on the invasion fleet. They're firing blind. They're having to fire across the headland, but it still, you know, poses significant danger. So Maine and his men then, as the sun rises, proceed to take three more gun batteries. And they see so many prisoners, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of prisoners, they can't even keep control of them all anymore. So they disarm them and send them all on their way. And during that process, the only real casualties they suffer are by deception and betrayal, because the Italians have this habit of pretending they've surrendered, putting up their hands, dropping their weapons. And then when men, Maine's men tried to take their, their, them, them captive, they would drop to the ground and behind them a machine gun would open fire. That happened several times. Right. So Maine and his men are very well aware that there are fake surrenders uh, being, being um, carried out against them. And then... 48, 72 hours after this incredible mission, they are going back to, returning to the Ulster Monarch, their their, yeah. their landing, uh, parent landing ship. And they're looking forward to a shower and a rest and some food because it's been pretty damn intense, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. And as soon as they get back on the Ulster Monarch, they get new orders. The new orders are that the um, major, major German naval, German-Italian naval port of Augusta, just up the coast, which has E-boats, U-boats, uh, seaplanes and the surface fleet and massive defences, they're told that there's a white flag of surrender flying above Augusta. Now, obviously, they don't believe it because of what they've suffered already, but they're given orders to go in and take the surrender of the port. So it's daylight, right. and they have to steam in on the Ulster Monarch and go in in their landing craft on a daylight landing against a right. extremely heavy, heavily defended enemy port. Now, you can imagine the surrender is a lie, and they go in under intense, intense fire. And once again, Maine's not only riding, Paddy Maine is not only riding in the lead landing craft. Right. But he's the first out of that landing craft to storm the beaches. Right. And a lot of his men get gunned down in, 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 in the very first moments of the landing. But Paddy Maine leads from the front as always. And they take, they do take Augusta Town. And then they are, and it, that that in itself is that the seizing of the port is an incredible story. What an operation. And then they are used again for the as the allies kind of leapfrog from there onto mainland Italy as the vanguard of the of the British forces, and they go in, they take another strategic uh, German and Italian um, port town to en enable the uh, main army to move through. Yeah. So they are being used in these kind of missions, which are. I mean, bear in mind, Paddy Main's got under his command at the start two hundred eighty-seven men. Mm -hmm. They go in as a as as a two hundred eighty-seven strong force. I mean, in the desert, the most they'd ever deploy in is a few dozen men. These were small-scale hit-and-run raiding operations, shoot-and-scoot attacks, yeah. you know, generally using fast-moving jeeps. This is not what they have been, you know, formed to do at all. This is a completely different way of operating. Mm -hmm. And as a result of it, you know, by by late, late in the Italian campaign for the SAS, they have suffered horrendous casualties. And they are no longer a viable fighting force. That's why they returned to the UK and to regroup and, re and recuperate for D-Day operations. Sure. Um, and during, I mean, during that period of time, I think one of the things we've sort of briefly touched on the last time we spoke was obviously as uh, as they were the kind of the almost like the progenitor of, of special forces, um, and um, uh, uh, the the US Rangers began to kind of emerge uh, as, as a result of kind of training in uh, in, in, in um, uh, Britain with 
the SAS and other um, you know the Marines and things like that. Did the did the the US have a kind of an equivalent kind of vanguard during the uh, uh, during during the Italian campaign, or was was the SAS kind of unique among Allied forces at that moment? Completely unique. I mean, you know, certainly during this period of the Italian campaign. So you're talking, you know, summer. 1943 to the end of 1943. No, the, the Americans had nothing like it. And that's partly why you had the SS going in as the tip of the spear on the Husky landings, which is a joint British and American operation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's actually not until, if, if you want to talk about the American equivalent force of the SAS, that they had nothing of the same ilk until they formed Delta Force, which right. of course exists to this day and delta force wasn't formed until decades after the war in fact i i know and he's quite a good friend of mine one of the founders of delta force a chap called bucky burris and he he told me how to form delta force they actually went and put themselves through sas selection him and one other, other guy kind of in the 60s to learn how we did it and then take it back to the america to america and put together the delta force selection process as well so you know, at this time and for a long period thereafter, there was no other equivalent unit to the SES and the SBS, the Special Boat Squadron Section Service, whatever you want to call it, it had various names um, in in America in the American order of battle, and so they were doing these kind of operations, which you know no one else was taking on. That 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 continued right the way through to the end of the war, right mm-hmm. the way through to you know the spring of 1945. The SES was serving right in the vanguard of Allied forces in that role. And what of the you know the the, the key kind of campaigns um, in uh, in Italy the, the the key sort of, uh, kind of battles and um, the, the two that people will probably know will be um, the uh, landings at Anzio and the enormous and uh, very long battle at Monte Cassino. Mm-hmm. Um, were the SAS involved in either of those uh, those campaigns? They were, but peripherally. Oh, well, no, peripherally is not the right word. They were, but used in the role that the SAS should be used. I'll give you an example. So with the Anzio unit of SAS, about six strong, commanded by a chap called Witherington, with, um, oh gosh, his second in command's name escapes me, sorry, um, Paul Quentin Hughes. Mm-hmm. They parachute in, but they don't parachute in where the Anzio landing is taking place. They parachute in deep inland behind enemy lines, and they parachute in to attack an air base where they know the Germans are flying their reconnaissance aircraft from, because if they can take those reconnaissance aircraft out, they can make sure that when the when the Anzio landing fleet comes in, there'll be no reconnaissance aircraft in the air that might spot the landings, and that's their mission. And it's 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 a very successful, very costly mission. Those are the kind of things mm. that the SAS are doing by that stage in the in in the Italian campaign. They've kind of reverted back to what they were formed to do. And yeah. what Paddy Main does with his two hundred and eighty seven men during that July to November period, this is the crucial thing to understand. He wins the SAS a reprieve. He right. once again proves what they can do. I mean, I'll give you an indication of how you know, acclaimed their operations were. So their commander at the time was General Dempsey, who was a First World War veteran and a highly decorated, highly respected. And Dempsey says at the end of of, of Paddy Main's SAS campaign in Italy, 
a series of brilliant operations brilliantly carried out. I have never had under my command a unit of the caliber and the discipline and capabilities that you have. I mean, you know, from a man like Dempsey, it's incredible praise. That's what they achieve. They win the SAS a reprieve, they win their survival, and they allow them because of that to recapture the original kind of operations that they used to do. Right, right. And because um and and it's interesting you come back to this this idea of of a re- reprieve. Um, I think some people listening might find it strange, and I think this happens in in military affairs more often than you think. Might consider it strange that there would be uh, figures in Whitehall and in the at the top of the army looking kind of suspiciously at things like the SAS and thinking and and actively looking to disband them at the first available opportunity. And I suppose, you know, where we exist kind of now, in, uh, being able to look back, we, we know, you know, we, we, we know um, what the SAS, what, what its use was. But at the time, what would have, you know, if, if you put yourself in the shoes of somebody who was an SAS sceptic, what would have their arguments actually been? Their arguments were very simple. Uh, you know, these are people who generally been schooled in First World War tactics, um, and they believed that um, one, the SAS means of waging war was ungentlemanly. It wasn't what the British military should be doing. This wasn't what British officers should be engaged in: hit and run attacks, shoot and scoop battles, um, hitting deep behind enemy lines. This wasn't gentlemanly conduct. That's the first thing. The second thing was, and this really went to the heart of it, that. This unit had been formed in a way which undermined the very essence of the British military, because never forget, you know, when David Sterling, Paddy Main and the rest formed the SAS, you know, they wrote out the key principles and the key principles were an egalitarian unit where rank does not matter. Merit matters. Merit above rank. And where no matter your rank, if you are part of an operation, and the rest of the men on your patrol are killed or captured, you will go ahead and carry out the mission objective because you have the ability to do so. So these were self-starters, self-confident individuals, no matter what class or background or rank you had. And they were individuals who were deliberately chosen because they had unconventional mindsets. You had to think of ways to attack the enemy, which the enemy would never conceive of, because that was the very raison d'etre of the unit. And to do that, you had to be a maverick, unconventional thinker. You wore, certainly in North Africa, pretty much the battle dress and uniform you chose. You carried the weapon you chose. You didn't have to salute your officers. And the only form of discipline that mattered and had to be used was the threat of being returned to your unit RTU because when you were in that amazing elite brotherhood the last thing anybody ever wanted was to be sent back to where they come from all of that ran counter ran counter contrary and very and hit the very heart of the way the British military was used to doing things and it's 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 a inconceivable but so true that the more successful they became the more they became resented and undermined because they were proving via their success that their critics were wrong. It was about, I suppose, um, trying to in trying to introduce into the heart of Britain's kind of military establishment this kind of this this thing that works on class 
a, a completely different culture, um, something that's, that's com completely alien. Um, if you think, you know, every organisation from the British Army through to, you know, the NHS through to the BBC to, to whatever, is any big, a common, a, a, you know, group of people will acquire its own internal culture, its way of talking, thinking and believing about certain things. Um, then when you go, ah, yeah, but in these exceptional circumstances of this war, uh, which is completely unlike anything we've fought before, you know, all those ideas, by the way, are pretty redundant. We need to be doing these radically different things. Every so often, you're lucky in those circumstances when you have somebody influential, a Churchill or somebody like him, who goes, yeah, OK, cool, I'm listening. But I suspect in many instances, you have military innovators like Paddy Main who come along and they their, their ideas kind of wither on the vine. Uh, we go to there are more counterfactuals now. Um, fab. So, um, in the last few minutes that we we've got, Damien, um, the book published at the moment, or are we waiting on? Is it is this week? Yeah, it published on Thursday. Today's Friday, so yeah, just been out twenty four hours. Yeah. Okay, fabulous. So, guys, um, forged in hell by Damien Lewis. Um, Make sure if you're picking one up, if you can do, please use your independent book retailer um, because once those guys are gone, you will miss them like hell. You really will. Um, and support, support that kind of um, ecosystem of, uh, of, of small independent book retailers if you can, please. Um, Damon, we'll finish there. Thank you so much. Um, and I eagerly anticipate the next time you, uh, you pop in to, uh, to talk to us about the SAS again. But it's Fabulous. been a pleasure once again. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much. All right. Take good care. Bye-bye. Yeah. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.